You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Good morning. My name is Jake Hotchkiss. I'm an associate pastor here at Schweitzer. Really, really good to be with you this morning. Thanks for joining us. I'd like to share with you a bit of history, and I'm no historian, but I've done my research this week, and uh, uh, so here we go. The year 70 AD. For roughly four years at that point in time, the Jews in Jerusalem had been in rebellion against Rome. They refused to pay their taxes. They had run their leaders out of town. They had sought to establish their own sovereign state. And as a result of this political turmoil, there had been civil wars there within God's own city. There had been tens of thousands of deaths and all sorts of mayhem. So the year 70 comes along and Roman, uh, the Roman leadership, I guess, had had enough. The Roman army besieged the city. They surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And and Jerusalem was a very well-fortified city. And so they held them off for seven months before they could get through the walls. In the course of those seven months, there were many who tried to escape, but nearly all of them were caught, and when they were caught, they were crucified, not just killed, but crucified, hung on a cross. Throughout the course of that seven months, history says that roughly 500 people were crucified a day, 500 Jews, Um, because the city was was barred off from anyone leaving or anyone coming in. Of course, their supplies ran short. And it didn't take long before people began to starve. There's a Jewish historian from that time who writes about this. The starvation was so bad that people began eating their own children who had passed away. This was just absolute horror. And after the seven months was over, when Rome finally got through the first wall, they burned the whole city down, destroyed the temple, and left quite literally no stone unturned. At the end of the day, over half a million Jews were sold into slavery. Over half of a million Jews were sold into slavery. That is the Roman siege of Jerusalem. Now, roughly 40 years earlier is where we enter into the text today. And it's in this text where Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem, that he also looks over the city, he prophesies about this very event that would happen 40 years later, and he weeps. He weeps that his own people did not understand the way to peace. Today is a day traditionally known as Palm Sunday. Um, Also, Passion Sunday is another word for it. Um, and it marks the beginning of Holy Week. Jim has mentioned this as we uh, seek to enter into the passion, the suffering of Jesus Christ. It takes us to the, the cross and, of course, uh, the resurrection. And uh, it begins at the very moment that Jesus, entering into the city, looks over it and he weeps. That's when the passion begins. And uh, we enter into the suffering this week in order to, to be shaped by it and be formed by it, to be softened by it so that we might change. And, and so we're going to talk about this Jesus weeping this morning and how it applies 
to us. Now, there's something really uh, peculiar about the timing in which he weeps. And I think it's going to offer some insight into the way that we should uh, experience Holy Week in this coming week. Um, so let's, let's have at it. Luke chapter 19, verse 35 is where we're going to start. Just to preface this, um, this is Jesus is coming near the end of his ministry. For 10 chapters now, Jesus has been set towards Jerusalem. Um, for months, he's been making his way back into the city, knowing that uh, his, his time is coming to an end. He's been preaching and, and teaching and healing, and I doubt hardly a soul in Judea had not heard of the name of Jesus. There was all sorts of um, talks about who he may have been, what he may or may not have been. But on this day, his followers recognized him as their king. And not just any king, but the promised Messiah to the Jewish, to the Jewish people, a fulfillment of prophecy. So here we are, uh, verse 35. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments, other texts say palms, palm leaves, right, um, on the road ahead of him. So they laid out this sort of red carpet. This one's purple, but you see uh, they're, they're treating him as royalty. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. Other texts would say, Hosanna in the highest. You've heard that proclaimed before. And this blessing that they're saying is from, uh, is from Psalm 118. And it's one that the Jews knew was, was uh, about the coming of the Messiah. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of Yahweh, the Lord. And they are saying this. They are proclaiming this in the streets outside of Jerusalem. This is a political statement. This is an uprising of sorts, or at least the beginning this is a very public thing that they're doing. And so in the next verse, it makes sense that some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. You can't say things like that. But Jesus replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. In other words, Jesus is saying, This is a day that the Lord has prepared, and it's been a long time coming. And all of creation is rejoicing, for its king has come to establish his kingdom on earth forever. And they must cheer. This was, in fact, a fulfillment of a, of a prophecy. I'll see how quickly I can flip to it here. Um, oh, that's pretty good. Zechariah 9.9. I just want to read this for you real quick because this is a powerful text. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. So Jesus says that very thing the prophet Zechariah wrote about hundreds of years ago is happening today. And so, 
There's a lot of pomp and circumstance here. This is a loud and rowdy group throwing a party for Jesus. And this is where his weeping becomes pretty peculiar. Because it's in the midst of that party. We read verse 41. As Jesus comes closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. You hear the prophecy. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. There are a couple things that I find really interesting, striking about the fact that Jesus weeps in this place. The first is that while he is being praised publicly, while he is finally being recognized for the person who he truly is, while he is being exalted by his followers in the streets, not for a moment did he pause to bask in the glory. Not for a second did he reap his hard-earned reward. But he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. All the attention is on him, but his attention is out on the world. I can only imagine how thrown off his disciples would have been. You know, like, you're throwing this party. Like, you're, you're, you're praising him. Jesus, this is for you. And you're, you're weeping. There's an appropriate time to rejoice, and there's an appropriate time to weep, and we see, we've seen throughout the book of Luke, Jesus does both. He's an emotional man. He's not afraid to show emotions, and yet, but, but when someone's throwing you a party, that is not the time to weep, and yet here he is. He can't control himself. He is unfazed, unmoved by all the pomp and the circumstance that is meant for him. Because his heart burns so passionately for his people. If there's ever a time where Jesus' true motives were revealed, it's here. Don't you think? If there's ever a time where we saw the heart of God in the heart of Jesus, and where we, can, we get some insight into why he did what he did, it's right here. I just think of, like, even as I preach this message, like right now, I'm just being honest with you, there's a part of me that wants to be praised. There's a part of me that really wants you to like me and like this, and I want to sound good and look good and sound smart, and I want, you know what I mean? And at the end of my life, I want lots of glory for all the great things that I've done for the kingdom of God. I mean, and does that surprise you? Yeah. <laughs> it's confession, it's confession time, right? Um, but I mean, I, it's, it is so hard for me to wrap my mind around how God in the flesh didn't care to be glorified. You know what I mean? That is crazy to me. Does that not speak to how passionately he loved every single person? How badly he wanted the world to know him. My God, my Savior, save me. 
So what does this mean for us for uh, this holy week? I would say, uh, first, to remember that we live and breathe like Christ to serve. Christ came to serve. To bring peace to the world around us. To reconcile the world to God. No matter how much work we've done or how many people we've served or how much we've sacrificed for God, let us never be puffed up in pride, ever. Let us humble ourselves. Let us never seek to be content in the praise of others. But always turned outward towards a world that doesn't yet know God. That, I believe, is the passion of Christ that we're called to enter into. I probably quote this verse more than any other verse in the Bible. It's Philippians 2. It just describes it so well. Um, six through eight-ish. And it says, <laughs> um, it says, Jesus, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and, and the likeness of human flesh. And being found in human form, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That, my friends, is the passion of Christ. But there's something else that's even more striking to me in this story, and it's this. Is that as Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem, we know that he knows how he's going to die. As he looks upon Jerusalem, he knows that within days he will be arrested, he will be mocked, ridiculed, spat on, beaten, that he will be hung, buck naked on a cross for all the world to see and die the most shameless, the most shameful death that a human being could die in that day. He knows that that death, his own, is imminent. And even knowing that, not a single tear he shed was for himself. Does that blow your mind? He wept not a single tear for himself, but all for Jerusalem's doom. If I were in in such a situation, um, I think you too, wouldn't we be inclined to like either run or, f or fight? And just, just think of the, the kind of knowing your death, that kind of death being that imminent, the fear, the anxiety, the, the anger or the hatred that would produce in your heart towards others, the, the self-protection mode, we just would kind of turn inward. And, and, and yet Jesus, this whole time, his heart remains outward towards the world who does not know him. He's just fixated, obsessed, in love, on fire for God's children. Most of my life, I've thought that the passion called me to weep for Jesus. You know, um, like the things that Jesus suffered. But here we see that Jesus' greatest point of suffering isn't his own death. His greatest point of suffering is, is, is God's broken heart 
for those who have rebelled against him and will never know the peace that they were designed to have. This, uh, you know, I'd never, this verse had never stood out to me until it was in this context, but just a few chapters later, Luke 23, um, there's this story where Jesus is carrying his cross, right, up the hill. He's carrying his cross, and there's a crowd around him, and in that crowd, there are women, uh, many of whom are his followers, who were weeping over him, and they're lamenting over the sight in front of their eyes, and what does Jesus say to them? He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And then, of course, as he hangs on the cross, some of the last words he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just his heart always turned outwards. The passion of Christ calls us not so much to weep for Jesus, but to weep with Jesus. For all the brokenness in the world. So, um, about a year and a half, two years ago or something, I was, I was praying that God would give me his, his eyes and his heart. And I may have told you this story before, but um, about a week of praying that, um, and, you know, sometimes I can just be insensitive and cold and th- just unaffected and unmoved, and I, it's like, I see the heart of Jesus, and wow, like, how do I get there? And um, so I just started praying, just, God, help me feel what you feel, um, see what you see. And it's hard to describe what happened. Um, one day, I was just praying, and the Holy Spirit fell on me, um, and, and my eyes were opened is the only way I can describe it. I cannot describe with words the, the level of, of intense pain that I felt as I saw the world the way God did and friends and loved ones of mine the way that God did. And, um, and I just wept. For, it was only, only lasted about 60 seconds. I just wept. I cried like a baby. I sobbed um, in a way that I've never experienced. I, just, I felt like God answered that prayer. He just gave me his heart. And in that moment, I, st- I think those were the most powerful prayers I've ever prayed. <laughs> uh, and I don't share that story to say, oh, you know, I'm so holy or whatever. I just, um, I try to say, um, like, can't we pray for that? Like, this week of all weeks, shouldn't we be praying for that? To enter into the suffering of Christ and not just to weep for Jesus, and, but to, to weep with God? I'm telling you, we got, we got to take the time to intentionally contemplate the effects of sin in the world, the devastation that takes place as a result of, of, of the world's alienation from God. We've got to take time, like Jesus, to look over the city, to look over our friends and family, to look over our country, our world, our church, our workplace, and just say, God, show me your heart for these people. Because when our hearts break, like God's heart breaks, only then will we ever really be able to follow Jesus to the cross anyway. You know what I mean? It was that love that drove him to the cross in the first place.
And now lastly, I want to look at this phrase that Jesus says. He says in verse 42, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. You of all people. What does he mean? Does anyone here know what Jerusalem means? City of peace. I always count on you, Brian. Yeah, Salem is Hebrew, uh, same root word as shalom, which many of you probably know as peace. So Jerusalem is the city of peace. And he says to the city of peace, how I wish that you of all people, Jerusalem, would know and understand the way to peace. Isn't it ironic that the city of peace did not know the way to peace? Isn't it tragic the very people who were raised on the word of God, the very people had been waiting and expecting for the, and praying for the coming of a Messiah, crucified him when he finally came. Isn't that tragic? All because they didn't recognize him. It's because this Jesus didn't look like the king that they expected, so how could he establish a kingdom that they expected? You know what I mean? See, Jesus, he was from Nazareth. That'd be like being from Lebanon. No offense. I'm sorry if you're from Lebanon. I was just, or Clinton, or, you know, maybe that was too close to home. I'm sorry. Um, but it's like, we didn't expect that. He wasn't properly educated in one of the, the finest schools. He ate and drank with sinners. You know that? He not only ministered to the poor, Jesus was the poor. That's a tough pill to swallow. He broke societal norms by letting women be his disciples. Jesus, his clock didn't tick by the demands, uh, to the demands of ministry, you know. But to the very heartbeat of God. Jesus was slow to anger and quick to forgive. Was that the king they expected? He was compassionate and empathetic, not stone cold. Jesus renounced wealth and excessive comfort. His whole life, he renounced it. He denied the throne of worldly power. He would not have it. He served the lowest of positions, like washing his disciples' feet. And ultimately, he died the most shameful death. Death on a cross. This is what Paul says is the foolishness of the gospel, but it's the wisdom of God, right? <laughs> it just sounds foolish to the world that such a man could ever be king. And yet this is the one whom God appointed to bring peace to all the earth. This was not the king they expected, mostly because his glory, the glory of Jesus Christ, was his love for all mankind. It was not his power or his wealth or his wisdom even. Or it, was, it was his love. That was his glory. Perfect, unending love for all people. So I have to ask, friends, um, if Jesus is your king, are you living in his kingdom? Or like Jerusalem, are you seeking to build your own? 
And if we are the body of Christ, are we operating really as, as extensions, representatives of him in this world? Does Christ really live in us? That Christ, not the Christ that we would expect to be king, but the real Christ. If we are Christians, otherwise known as little Christs, do we reflect the glory, the character, the love of Jesus Christ in the way that we live? If not, then take these words to Jerusalem as a warning. The degree to which we do not recognize Jesus as our king, the degree to which we do not place him in charge of our life, is a degree to which we will just sow seeds for our own destruction. You see, it wasn't even God's judgment <laughs> that, was, that was what crippled Jerusalem. It was, it was, they just sowed the seeds for their own destruction. They had hearts that rebelled against God, and so they rebelled against Rome, and they rebelled against each other, and they destroyed themselves. Hear me say that Jesus Christ is the only way to peace, and wholeness, and life, and fullness, happiness that exists. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come to you, yes, praising you, exalting you as our king. Your glory is undeniable. God, how we thank you for revealing yourself fully in Jesus Christ that we might know who you are and what kind of kingdom it is that you invite us into. We place you on the throne. We place you in charge of our lives this morning. We just give ourselves more fully to you. Forgive us. Thank you for forgiving us. I pray this morning that you, and, and for this week, that you would give us your heart for the world. Give us your tears. Help us to weep with you, Jesus, to just know your heart. Change our motives. We're sorry for, for wanting to be glorified. We're sorry for wanting to be and, and seeking praise from others. We're sorry for being self-centered when you just are always looking outward and serving and loving others. Bless us this week, Lord. Change us and transform us. And reconcile more and more of the world around us to this kingdom of peace. In the name of the Father, 
the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.